So this is the, our fifth week in the book of Revelation. I was able to get that down while sitting. Uh, and I mentioned to you on the first Sunday of this series that Martha and Bernard told me s- that several of their pastors through the years have started Revelation and haven't finished it. And I was started to think to myself this week, it was probably about chapter 6 when they started wondering and having their doubts whether the Lord was calling them to preach through a gospel or maybe a book of Philippians or something like that. Uh, this is when things start to get notoriously difficult in the book of Revelation. But we don't have to lose hope. As always with the Bible, we need to keep the larger picture in view. The larger picture of Scripture, and then especially the larger picture in Revelation itself. The movement in Revelation is God's reign in heaven is coming to earth. Jesus is being unveiled as the true king over the world. And those who follow him, regardless of our current status, will be crowned with him. Jan said this, uh, this, week in our, or this past week in our small group that she doesn't feel ready to reign yet. To rule with God the way Revelation describes over and over again. This was in our passage that we read last week too. And there ended up being this little squabble in our small group over who was going to have to reign or get to reign over who. Which I think just proved her point that we weren't ready to reign yet actually. In all seriousness, this, this is one of the ideas we have to grow into as we're listening to the book of Revelation. Our true calling as human beings is to reign over creation alongside Christ. To shepherd the world with the lion who is the lamb. Did you notice in the passage today, it said the lamb would be their shepherd? The lamb would become the shepherd of his people and his martyrs. And this is what God is calling us and forming us to do, to shepherd the world and the creation with Him. But there's also this strong tension throughout the book, because despite God's reign, His people are suffering great evil. All is not well in the world. And their suffering will soon grow worse. Twice already we've heard that Jesus is revealing to His people the things that will soon take place. Even though Revelation is absolutely timeless, it's for us. It had specific meaning for these churches that it was written to. Standing where we do on the other side of this history, we know that these Christians were about to face an onslaught of violent persecution. From the years A.D. 64 to A.D. 68, nearly everyone turned against Christians. Their worship, their unique morality, these these things, these people were blamed for every social ill. So there was a fire, for instance, that destroyed Rome in A.D. 64. The emperor Nero blamed it on Christians, and in doing so made them the official target for public ridicule and violent attack. To murder a Christian would not necessarily have been murder at this time. It would have been a good, responsible act if you were a true Roman. 
In chapters 4 and 5, Jesus brought John into heaven to give him the vision of these things that were about to happen. And John's still there. This vision is still happening in chapters 6 and 7 that we just heard. But in the initial vision, John was witnessing Jesus' ascension and his enthronement in heaven. Here's what God has done first. He's, He's brought time back a little bit for John so that he can see the perspective from heaven of the things that God has done through Christ and the things that He's going to do in the future. Because of His sacrificial death, Jesus has rescued humanity from sin and evil. He's restored us to bear God's image in the world. And this has also enabled Jesus to earn the right to open the scroll. So a scroll in the ancient world, it could contain a battle strategy to attain victory in war. And this scroll contains God's plans to defeat evil and finally restore His good creation. Chapters 6 and 8 are the process of the scroll being unopened. Pay close attention though, because these chapters are not about what's in the scroll. God's final victory will come in good time, but there's more to happen before then. So with the removal of each of the seven seals comes an event. Something happens in the world, but the event is being described from a heavenly perspective. So it is often described in symbols, hence the the horses, all, all these things that are a little bit difficult to decipher. So with all the suffering that's going to come for God's people, God is giving them a different perspective than what they can currently see on earth. They're entrenched in their pain and in their struggle. Their minority status. They're going to need this vision from heaven to endure what they're about to suffer. So even as Jesus reveals to His servants the future, He starts by showing them the past from this other angle. So last week, we saw Jesus' enthronement after His ascension. What happened after Jesus' ascension? Go back in your mind to the book of Acts. Jesus sent out His people in the power of the Spirit to carry the gospel to the world. This is what the seven seals are depicting from a heavenly angle. The progress of the gospel and its consequences. So the first four seals are the four horsemen, sometimes called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they've been identified in all sorts of ways, but how you identify the very first horseman on the white horse, this sets the tone for how you're going to identify the rest of the horsemen. This doesn't necessarily make it any easier because the first horseman has been identified from everything from Christ to the Antichrist. And that leaves lots of options in between. So let's strike off the furthest extreme, and this will uh, narrow the possibility some. This is not the Antichrist. It is not. As I said earlier, every mention of conquering thus far in Revelation has a positive connotation. A person conquers in this life 
through patient endurance with Christ and in His gospel. It is an impossible leap to say that it's now the Antichrist who is conquering. There's more to it than that. The first positive clue to who all the writers are is that Jesus and the four living creatures are in complete control of them. They only come when Jesus and His angels tell them to come. And these horses and the riders are sent to carry out His work. They might cause division, that's true, but they submit to Jesus. The second clue is from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 10, God promises to make His people like a mighty horse in battle, and they will defeat their enemies. The third clue is again the time frame. This is happening after Jesus' ascension into heaven. God is giving His people another perspective on those days that have already transpired. Jesus has been enthroned. And who is it that gets to ride a horse and wear a crown like the first rider does? Kings. So in a way, the riders are enthroned on horses and they resemble the one who sits on His throne in heaven. Final clue. As I said, the rider on the white horse is given a crown. And a crown is not typically what a king wears into battle. It doesn't do much to protect one's head. It would be safer to wear a helmet. The image here should strike us as rather self-assured. What are you doing going into battle wearing a crown? This rider... This king is exceedingly confident of victory. In fact, it appears that this is a battle whose victory has already been won. And in fact, at the end of Revelation, it will clearly be Christ who is enthroned on the white horse and wearing crowns. So who is the rider here on the white horse? The rider here is Jesus' spirit who is sent out with the church to conquer with the gospel, the arrows of God's word. The Spirit conquers by putting evil to death and bringing new life. The white horse symbolizes the gospel's victory in the world. As the good news of Jesus pierces us, as people surrender to it, the gospel conquers and Jesus' kingdom takes root in the world. But there are also other unexpected consequences that go along with the church's presence in the world. So think again to the book of Acts. As the church preaches the gospel, the Jews rise up against them, don't they? Some receive the good news, but others resist it. In the words of Jesus, brother begins to fight against brother, father against son, mother against daughter. All of this culminates when the Jews kill Stephen. The truth is that the world is often filled with a false peace that's just waiting to blow. People and nations deal with problems, all of us do this sometimes, by sweeping them under a rug 
or we settle for temporary solutions rather than dealing with root problems. But the gospel of Jesus comes in and it calls evil what it is. It refuses to let it be swept under a rug. We must repent, says the gospel. We must turn to the God of grace and receive His mercy and live in His love. But what do we do when we're told we're wrong and we don't want to be told we're wrong? We lash out. This is what the red horse symbolizes. The Spirit rides the church into the world, and what does it do immediately? It causes division. The church, often contrary to our own desire, mimics the ministry of Jesus in that we don't always bring peace. Sometimes the sword of God's Word is not well received. The red horse is a picture of reality. It reminds us that the consequence of the gospel is often division. And this is sad. We don't say this proudly. We don't boast about it. We're not eager for it, but it is reality. For God's people who do not expect suffering, who are not seeking it, we actually long for peace. We need to be reminded that division is part and parcel of following Jesus. It's not something we eagerly seek out, but it comes into our lives uninvited sometimes. Some of us haven't had to deal with this yet. And it's partly because we've lived in a culture that for a long time has been steeped in Judeo-Christian values. And so it was easy for a lot of our family to conform to some picture of Christianity, even if it wasn't necessarily explicit. It at least held a peace for a long time. But this is less and less the case. Many of us in the coming years, if we're not already, are going to feel the pain of division between family and friends because of our commitment to Jesus. And there are all kinds of feelings and tensions that you can begin to experience when this happens, especially if it's your children or your own parents. You can begin to feel like a failure, for one. Like it, you did something wrong. Or you can feel guilty for the tension itself, as if you're doing something wrong in causing it because you are the one who is trying to follow Jesus. And you want to find a way to resolve it. Is there just something I can do? What I think Jesus calls us to is actually the very hardest path. I think Jesus calls us to feel the tension and to live and pray within it. Not to try to dissolve it because we can't. To feel it, to bear it in our bodies, the pain of it, and to learn to live and pray within that. Because the tension itself is not about your failure or your guilt. It's really not. You might need to ask for forgiveness for things. That's fine. You might need to go to God. You might need to go to people and confess things and ask for forgiveness. That is fine. But this is not the main issue. The very painful reality is that the gospel creates tensions. 
It creates division. And we must learn to live and pray within that, that God would somehow make these divisions right. He's the only one who can heal them. And we're all going to need each other's help to learn how to do this. So some of you, sadly, have had to forge a way through relationships like this. You've had to learn. You've made mistakes along the way. But the only way the church will learn how to live within these divisions, these kinds of relationships that we're bound to experience, is if we're willing to share our experiences with each other. Learn the wisdom that we've gained through our own experiences. We, we share that with each other. And then we grow in this collective wisdom as God's people in how we relate to those we love, but those we know have walked away from Christ. This is a painful part of following Him. Now the third and the fourth horses are going to expand this picture of division that we see in the second horse, the red horse. The third horse is black and it holds scales that are for measuring. A voice comes from the midst of the four living creatures that says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. These are scarcity prices. It takes a day's wage to buy a day's worth of food. People are living hand to mouth. Then we also hear, do not hear the harm, the oil and the wine. And this, these voices, remember, these voices are coming from the midst of the throne. Now we have to remember as we hear this that food and drink are not always literal in the Bible. Sometimes these things are symbolic. And in apocalyptic literature, these things are often symbolic. They stand for spiritual realities. So in the book of Isaiah, we hear God say this, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Bread signified by wheat and barley, is a symbol for the old covenant that is passing away with Christ. Apart from faith in the Messiah, the Jews are going to begin to experience a shortage of God. They are already experiencing a shortage of God, who is the true bread. Israel is going to be judged. Their temple is going to be destroyed. Their whole world will be overthrown. But then the voice comes and also says this, Do not harm the oil and the wine. Wine is a symbol for the church that participates in the blood of Christ that's shed for them. Oil is a symbol for the Spirit by which the church is anointed with God's power. And of these, oil and wine, there's no shortage of supply. Even while the others are passing away, the oil and the wine are protected, protected and preserved. God is telling His people, despite your suffering, you are being protected. The old ways are going to pass away, and the new ways are coming. Now the fourth seal is the pale horse, and the rider's name is Death. We're told that Hades follows after him. This one is certainly the hardest one to square. He's given authority to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now these judgments, 
Listen to them again. Famine, pestilence, wild beast of the earth. These judgments echo the plagues that are sent on Egypt when they reject him over and over. When people and nations continually refuse the way of God, they bring self-inflicted judgment on themselves. But it's crucial to keep in mind that even the judgments of God are meant to lead people and nations toward repentance, toward mercy. For some reason, when things go south for us, as individuals and as whole nations, communities, instead of turning, we sometimes stubbornly dig in. We set ourselves even more resolutely on our own way. And this is what God is saying the nations have done. This is what the nation of Israel did when they rejected the Messiah. They stubbornly dug in and set themselves in their own way. And for this, they will experience Judgment. Even so, remember that earlier in the book of Revelation, Jesus is said to hold the keys to death in Hades. So this rider, the darkest of all of them, he is also under Jesus' power. He brings death only so that he can bring life. So even when we feel ourselves close to death, We can release ourselves to Christ and He will infuse us with His resurrection power. These riders and the horses, they are a picture of the church's work of the gospel. The victory of the gospel going forward in the world and the consequences that come as part of that. Now this leads to the fifth seal. The gospel's clash with the world has created martyrs. People who've been killed because of their witness to God before the lies of the world. So in chapter 6, verse 9, we're told that the martyrs are under the altar. They're not yet before God in heaven. And like Abel, who killed, was killed by Cain in Genesis, the martyr's blood cries out from the ground for justice. So they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Everything from this point forward is going to be about God's actions in response to these martyrs' prayers. Everything from this point forward. So with the sixth seal, the world begins to fall apart. There are earthquakes, the sun turns black, the moon turns to blood. These are apocalyptic ways of describing God's judgment on the current world order. This is how Jews described earth-shattering events, the fall of kingdoms that had been in power for generations and generations. This is how these falls would be described. And Jesus predicted an event like this, that the temple at the center of the Jews' world would be completely destroyed, that not one stone would be left on another, that people would flee and hide in caves in the mountains to escape judgment. This sounds like the book of Matthew as Jesus described what was going to come on the people of those days because of their rejection of Him. 
Here's what we're learning from this. When the, the temple of Israel fell in 70 A.D., this event was God's judgment on Israel. Because they had crucified Jesus and they spilled the blood of His followers. The blood of His followers cries out. Those countries that begin to spill the blood of His people will be judged. Martyr blood It is the seed of the church, but it is also the founding blood of a new world. So when you hear of Christians who are dying across the world today, when you hear of places that Christians are being persecuted for their faith, we need to remember the blood in the ground is crying out for justice, and God will bring justice for His people. Now all of chapter 7 is a future vision of the martyrs' prayers being answered in full. So their prayers have paved the way to their own ascension before the throne. They suffer no more. There's this beautiful phrase that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, typically, I want to stop here for just a second, because typically we take this to mean that one day we're going to cry no more tears, which I think there's something very real and true to this. But on the literal level, what it also means is that one day we're going to stand before God and we might cry because of all the sadness we've experienced in our lives. And in that moment, God is going to come to us in person and He Himself with His own hand is going to wipe our tears away from our eyes. In the book of Psalms, it says that He keeps all our tears in a bottle. And there in that moment, God will take our tears and He'll put them in that bottle and we will see that bottle sealed. This is God's intimate love for His people. Now the final seal, the seventh seal is opened at the beginning of chapter 8 and there is silence. It says for 30 minutes. Why silence? Silence is a posture of readiness to receive. It's making room for the voice of another. So worship itself incorporates silence so that God can speak. Silence itself becomes an act of faith on our part. As we wait, we trust that God has heard our prayers and we expect that God is going to respond to them. So even the martyrs enter into silence and wait for God to act. An angel comes and stands at the altar with a censer. He offers incense. The incense is a sign of the Spirit of Jesus who raises our prayers before God. Remember in the book of Romans, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Spirit Himself carries our prayers before the throne of God. And in response to these prayers, the angel throws fire on the earth. Again, The earth is being shaken. Evil is being fully uprooted and judged to make room for God's kingdom to grow up, to take root, and to swallow up the earth. Now before we close, very quickly, I want to return for just a second to the martyr's prayers in chapter 6. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
we're seeing here that heaven and earth are related. They overlap. But we're also seeing that prayer is the way that we cross the threshold from earth to heaven. Everything from this point forward is in answer to the prayers of the saints, their blood that cries out from the earth for justice. I wonder how many of us have been willing to pray for this kind of justice. For this kind of righting of wrongs in our lives and in the lives of others. How many of us have prayed the prayer, How long, O Lord? With this kind of passion, with this kind of sadness and longing for resolution. This is not petty or spiteful vengeance that the martyrs are asking for. It's a heart-aching desire to see the world brought back into balance, into the way God made it to be. Our own personal prayers and the church's prayers become anemic, sentimental, and ineffective when we hesitate to pray for justice in this way. When we refuse to pray with the question, the cry, How long, O Lord? How long? God is good. His judgment is good. So we should pray for judgment. And we should rejoice when it comes. Desmond Tutu was a South African bishop who would preach at the, funeral of, the funerals of civilians who were killed in South Africa under apartheid. This brutal treatment of local blacks under the ruling whites. And Tutu at the funerals would preach from Revelation 6. And he would cry out, How long, O Lord? And he said it was as if the passage were written for those whom he buried. I realize we're not facing the same trials. But we do see injustice and wrongs around us in our families, in our community, in our vocations. We experience the pain and the division that from others, our children, our parents, our friends, because of the gospel. And for all of these pains, we are invited to pray, to cross the threshold from heaven to earth and rise up to the altar of God. So prayer, even the anguished prayer of those who don't understand what's going on, this is the way we join with God in His work of bringing heaven to earth. This is the way that we reign with Him right now. We pray that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we conclude, let's stand and pray as people who believe that our prayers are rising before God and He is responding to them. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.